With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. The dead won't bother me. It's the living you gotta worry about. Some, if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I'm Janelle. And we're back again. For another week of crime. Ooh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's been. It's been. <laughs> it's been. I feel like we're we're just constantly like in the midst of a bunch of things. Oh, I do have some news that I could mm. probably share that I forgot yes. about. My mom, who is a big fan of the podcast, is officially retired. Yay. Oh, sweet. Hooray. So congrats to her. Woohoo. Yeah. Is it she never too has early to work for me again. to retire. <laughs> That's what I keep saying. I'm just like, if I could retire turn? right now, I would. I feel like I've worked a hundred jobs. So yeah. <laughs> every every time one of the people I work with is like, um, one of the older people I work with is like, oh, I can't wait until I retire. And I'm just like, Yeah, me too. I feel that. <laughs> they give me that look of like, you're too young. Don't be saying that. And I'm like, no, for real. It's been a thousand lifetimes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we've got a great show for you today. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. All right. This week, we actually have a incredibly an incredibly serious piece of news. Um, so yeah, so, and, and this is absolutely something that I know you're passionate about, Janelle. This news comes out of Canada, where on the site of what used to be one of Canada's largest residential school, they found the remains of 215 children buried Mm -hmm. on the ground. Some of them as young as three years old, they were able to find these remains with the help of ground penetrating radar. Now, the grounds that they were looking at were, they belonged to the Kamloops School, which operated between 1890 and 1969, before it was like, ta- it was like taken over by the Catholic Church and turned into a day school, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, now, this article comes from CBS News, and according to the article, quote, a report more than five years ago by a Truth and Reconciliation Commission said at least 3,200 children had died amid abuse and neglect, and it said that it had reports of at least 51 deaths at the Kamloops School alone between 1915 and 1963, but it is also believed that a lot of these discovered deaths have not been reported to, like, any agency. Yep. So that was a big piece of news. If you if you guys are unfamiliar with these residential schools, their places essentially what they did is they took the indigenous people of Canada, they stole them, stole them, Let's stole them, <laughs> stole children from their families. Yes, put them into these residential schools where they were aiming to make them more white and Catholic. And yep. there's a saying that was used a lot was. 
kill the Indian and save the man. So that tells you what how that goes. Yes. And I mean, obviously, there was like an incredible history of abuse and like their stories of children getting beaten for speaking their native languages and, you know, obviously a lot of death that went unreported. I mean, this is like incredibly horrific treating of the indigenous peoples of Canada. Somewhat similar to what happened here. Weird. Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, I really think Canada's schools were worse because they continued to operate. There were some schools that operated into the fucking 90s. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I am not surprised by this. And there's been people who've covered cases like this before. They found mass graves before. Canada's doing a real shit job of like reparations. And I mean, you know, the missing and murdered indigenous people. (laughs) There's networks everywhere trying to find the Women, girls, and two-spirited people, which two-spirited people never get talked about. If you know anything about two-spirited people, it's someone who identifies with uh, female and male force. So those particular individuals that get murdered or lost are, like, never talked about. So there's a very, very, very big problem in Canada. Yeah, yeah. So... It's, it's, I feel like it's something everybody should educate themselves on. I know we've talked about it on the show before. I'm pretty sure we yes. have an old episode that we did for Canada. I've talked about it a couple times. Mm. <laughs> I wonder why. No. <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. Moving on to Netflix and Kill. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like I would be remiss if we didn't talk about what is probably the most watched true crime documentary at the right now the time okay that we're talking about this which is of course the sons of sam a descent into darkness everyone i've talked to in the last like week is like oh my god have you watched this yet full Mm -hmm. disclosure this is going to be 100 reliant on you janelle because i have not watched it yet (laughs) okay okay and because admittedly i've been taking a little hiatus from true crime to expand my watch list but I will be watching it eventually. So, Janelle, mm-hmm. I'm assuming you've watched this already. I I have, yes. Okay. Thoughts? Feelings? It's pretty good. It's it's one of Joshua Zeman's work. And if you're familiar, familiar with him, he did Cropsy and he did a, a series about the Gilgo Beach slayings. Mm-hmm. So okay. I, I enjoy his style quite thoroughly. And this kind of talks about more the investigation by a private investigator into how Son of Sam is part of a satanic cult. And oh. he played some in, of the exclusive interviews with... Oh my gosh, I just totally forgot his name. <laughs> the Son of Sam. Um, <laughs> oh, David Berkowitz. Yes, David Berkowitz. I'm like... Duh, 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 duh. Yes. <laughs> in my brain. Um, David Berkowitz, when he was older, and um, just kind of exploring that and all the conspiracy theory around it. See, that sounds Bob. I understand why people are talking about it now, because that sounds really interesting. Yeah, there was definitely some shit going on in New York at this time. I don't necessarily think that there was a satanic cult involved with the Son of Sam killings, but I definitely do believe there was more than one person, which was also the kind of crux of their argument, that there wasn't just one shooter, that there were multiple. Okay. So, I don't know, it was interesting it's definitely a heavily conspiracy theory related. So if you're not into conspiracy theories, oh man, it it's a deep dive into one. <laughs> I like that. I like the sounds mm-hmm. of that. Well, that's definitely. I am gonna have to check it out one one of mm-hmm. these days. I'll get back to it. And it's not it. too long. And you know how I always gripe about stuff being like overkill. Yeah. Do you know how many episodes <laughs> it is, or is it a documentary? It's a couple episodes. Uh, I want to say two or three. I can't remember. Oh, that's not time. bad at all. Yeah. yeah. That's not too bad at all. All right. So that is The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness on Netflix. Everyone's talking about it. You all have probably watched it already. Honestly, I'm always lagging behind. So (laughs) don't judge me. Okay. This is that part of the show where you say content might not be appropriate for our listeners. But actually, this is, at least for me, one of the less violent shows. Oh, mine too. Because mine doesn't, mine has, doesn't have like direct killing of people. It's no. indirect murder. <laughs> I have zero murder, but a lot oh. of really slimy assholes mm-hmm. because we are talking about Boston corruption. We've been, oh, yeah. we've been on this Boston kick and in our 
WrestleMania episode, we <laughs> talked about some more. I said, well, maybe we'll do Boston Corruption. Here it is for everybody that was hoping <laughs> we would he get was to waiting it. so patiently. Yes. Yes. <laughs> for two episodes. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, that's the time to do it. This sounds like a good idea. And I found actually I, I feel like our show, this show particularly, has a very heavy theme to it. Not just corruption, but like, well, you'll find out. You'll see. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with the MBM scandal. Okay. And this may be a story that you might need to get a pen and paper out for because <laughs> there's a lot of players and a lot of names and a lot of like, just like zigzagging in this story. So hold on tight and pay attention because <laughs> it's it's going to go all over the place. So the story starts off simple enough. In April of 1970, the Bureau of Building and Construction was looking for a company to supervise the construction of the University of Massachusetts Boston's new campus. Now, without much fanfare, the Bureau chose McGee, Berger, and Mansueto, Inc., also known as MBM. The agreement stated their fee was 1.53% of the approved budget for phase one, which netted the company an estimated $2,295,000. Donald R. Dwight, who was the commissioner of administration, approved the contract and the project moved forward. However, a curious writer named Wendell Woodman, who was a state house reporter, started looking into the details of this deal and he reported on his findings. He he wrote a four-day series um, labeling it a sweetheart deal, saying the Bureau, quote, never negotiated the contract in any way and that the McKee Burger proposal was accepted intact by the Commonwealth before the state had seen it. The contract indicates there was collusion between the BBC and McKee Burger and possibly conspiracy. So already it's like, this is not right. So he releases the first part of this series. And after just this first part, Senator Joseph DiCarlo and Representatives Ralph Sirianni and William F. Hogan, who are just, you know, like, your average run-of-the-mill concerned politicians uh -huh. <laughs> file a legislative order calling for an investigation and a report into the MBM deal. Now, MBM, believing that this initial reporting was completely inaccurate, they hired their own attorney, who happened to be former Governor Peabody, and prepared a rebuttal letter, which was delivered to all of the congressmen. Senator DiCarlo went to McKee, who was one of the partners in MBM, and said, actually, this is not a direct quote, by the way, <laughs> but in summation, said, actually, I don't really care about whether or not the contract was done in good faith. I just want to use this opportunity to embarrass Commissioner Dwight. <laughs> so Commissioner Dwight, who like I said, had approved the contract to begin with, was a political rival to Senator DiCarlo. So at the time that this was all happening, Commissioner Dwight had been already elected to be lieutenant governor. And so DiCarlo kind of saw him as this rival for a future gubernatorial race. Like, he's thinking like long term, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, super long-term, because uh, he had <laughs> just been elected lieutenant governor. But Gotta have that five-year plan, you know? <laughs> or 50-year yeah, plan. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> true. Oh, my gosh. That's a oh, 50-year plan. I do not have a 50-year plan. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, am, I didn't plan on making it to 50, so. <laughs> <laughs> DiCarlo also told McKee that he was naive about political life in Boston, which is something that was apparently Statement somewhat of a century. Accurate. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so McKee worried that MBM might be getting like bad information from the senator, decided that he went to his associate, Mansueto, and they decided to get advice from another senator, Senator Kelly, who at the time 
was the chairman of the Senate Ways and Means Committee and who had like these previous encounters with MBM. So he had kind of already had somewhat of a relationship with the company. Now, this is <laughs> this is directly from an appeal that was filed later in this case, quote, Mansueto met with Kelly and the latter volunteered that he could get someone better than Peabody to represent him. Asked how he knew about Peabody, Kelly said he knew of the Revere meeting. And Revere is where DiCarlo, Senator DiCarlo's house is at. So when the um, attorney, who is former Governor Peabody, went to deliver, he hand-delivered their rebuttal letter to Senator DiCarlo, secretly, under the cover <laughs> of dark. Like, mm. yes. So that's the, and he lives in Revere. That's the Revere meeting. Peabody had been visible, but McKee was surprised to learn that Kelly knew of a private meeting that DiCarlo had said should have not taken place. Kelly further said that if Mansueto would meet him the following month, when both were going to be in Florida, that he might be able to help. End quote. So a month goes by. At this point, like the legislative order that had been filed sort of snaked its way into the Senate Ways and Means Committee for approval. In the meantime, the meeting scheduled to take place in Florida moves forward. Senator Kelly went to Mansueto and said, look, again, not a direct quote, but he says, look, <laughs> lucky here. <laughs> look, I talked with DiCarlo and he is like really out to get old Dwight. So like he is hard on this political payback thing. But, you know, a little money could make this whole thing just go away. <laughs> so Kelly said that $100,000 to DiCarlo would take care of the matter. And then he left. He went on his way. Just $100,000. That's not too much, right? No. I always think about these, like, these bribing schemes and stuff. And they're always just like, you know, just like a couple thousand, like 50,000, 100,000. I'm like, where do these people just like... They just go to the bank and they're like, can I get $50,000 in cash? I'd be lucky if I ever see that amount in my bank. Yeah. My whole yeah. life. <laughs> in my bank, let alone like in, in person, anywhere. in cash. <laughs> yeah. So Mansueto, of course, went back to his associate McKee, told him everything that had happened. And the two very astutely, I would say, decided that this was blackmail. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'd say so. Although it had become apparent that the investigation would basically be, quote, phony and unfair, MBM decided not to give in to pressure from the senators to fork over the cash. A week after this Florida meeting, the Senate Ways and Means Committee voted to adopt the legislative motion and move forward with the investigation into the MBM contract and how it was secured. Now, a committee was appointed to lead the investigation with none other than Senator DiCarlo at its helm as the Senate chairman. Needless to say, the hearings did not go well. Um, <laughs> the committee was openly hostile towards MBM, and the company really started to get worried about the outcome of these hearings. And there were, there were four hearings that took place between May 5th, 1971 and July 29th, 1971, and after the final hearing, MBM sent their head of sales, William Harding, to speak with his friend, who also happened to be a senator on the committee, uh, Senator a, Ronald McKenzie. A lot of grease and palms here. Yeah. Interesting how uh, they were told, you don't understand politics in Boston, but they clearly have many friends. Exactly. Out in the, in the Congress. <laughs> okay. So... The head of sales, William Harding, he goes to Senator Ronald McKenzie to see if he could get sort of like a read on the outcome of the investigation. When he reported back to MBM, Harding said that Senator McKenzie had said a favorable report would cost between thirty to $40,000. Fearing the report truly was going to be negative, McKee Mansueto decided paying the money was probably the best option. And then made a series of five payments totaling $40,000 to McKenzie, who was allegedly giving it to DiCarlo. So again, from the appeal that was filed, quote, during this interval, McKee was shown a copy of the draft report and found it not satisfactory. He dictated a memorandum, sent it to McKenzie via Harding, 
And then when the report was filed, most of McKee's language was in it under the heading conclusion, end quote. So he just is like, I don't really like the t- the tone of this. Here's what you should put in. Sent a little letter and they just like slid it into the report. This is a post-it note. <laughs> yeah, right. They literally Xeroxed the post-it note and just taped it onto the end of the <laughs> end of the report. So these payments are being made. Reports are being filed. All this time, MBM is actually having a little bit of a cash flow problem. So like the initial payments were only $5,000 a pop, but eventually all of the money was paid, but not like as quickly as DiCarlo would have liked. So he took the matter into his own hands, confronting McKee, saying we shouldn't have to chase you around like creditors. And that the late payments were causing him embarrassment and difficulty because he had to share them with others. Jesus, You're okay. making me look bad by not paying the money I'm trying to extort from you. <laughs> now, flash forward to the spring of 1975, when federal investigators were looking into corruption in Pennsylvania. During a grand jury hearing in relation to the corruption investigation, an MBM employee was on the stand answering questions. Now, when he was asked if he was aware of corruption in any other state, he answered yes. (laughs) And when they asked him where it was, he said it was in Massachusetts. Of course. This information was forwarded to the FBI's Boston field office, who began investigating immediately, eventually turning up the entire scheme involving Senators DiCarlo, McKenzie, and MBM. The federal indictment was eight counts total, including violating the Hobbs Act, which makes it illegal to extort money under the threat of economic injury or through misuse of public office, violating the Federal Travel Act, which outlaws the use of interstate transportation or communications in connection with committing of illegal of an illegal act and conspiracy for each of those. During the trial, defense attorneys argued that the money was political contributions. <laughs> of course it is. Because that makes sense, right? I mean, sure. There's no laws for that stuff yet, so. <laughs> this didn't sway the, jur- the jury, who, after 23 days of trial and seven hours of deliberation, found DiCarlo and McKenzie guilty on all eight counts. They were facing a combined 70 years in prison, but each was sentenced to one year in prison and a $5,000 fine. Then came the after investigations, which, you know, government so often does. They like to get a commission on some things when things like this happen. So the convicted senators at this point had resigned their positions on their respective committees, but they both refused to resign from the Senate. In reaction to what was being called, at this point, the MBM scandal, the Senate created a standing committee on ethics, whose first goal was to investigate the conduct of DiCarlo and McKenzie. It was at this point that McKenzie just decided to cut his losses and retire from the Senate. Smart move. The day after (laughs) the committee recommended expelling DiCarlo from the Senate... Yeah, they were like, he needs to go. The Senate agreed, voting 28 to 8 to expel, and DiCarlo was, in essence, fired from the Senate. (laughs) His expulsion was the first to happen in the Senate's 196-year history, which is, um, I guess, (laughs) something to be known for. Like, Mm -hmm. this investigation was only into the ethics of the senators, but there was, like, more digging to be done into the whole thing that got this started in the first place, which was the rampant corruption involved in the awarding of state and county building projects. Mm. So the Ward Commission was born, which you actually hear... The Ward Commission brought up a lot in reference to what Janelle will be talking about later, for reasons we'll talk about later. But the official name was the Special Commission Concerning State and County Buildings. 
John William Ward, the president of Amherst College, was chosen to chair the commission and lead the investigation. In total, the inquiry lasted two years, eight months, and 18 days. And the report finished out at 2,000 pages, or 12 volumes. Yikes. It was released in 1980 on New Year's Eve. And I have included a link to the report in the show notes, which I admittedly didn't read because I opened it and it is insanely <laughs> dense. Long. Yeah, it's yeah. Well, and the thing is, like, it was released in 1980. So what they essentially did is they took the pages of this report and then scanned them into a computer and then put them online. So it's not like a text document. It's like old ass pages of a report written in 1980 mm. scanned and put online. So it's a little like you have to, it, when you're looking for things like in the table of contents and stuff, like I found the section and then it's broken down into more micro sections and more micro sections. You have to find all these pages and then you have to scroll to like get to it. It's a whole. So I couldn't, I didn't, I chose not to, <laughs> but the big points, as reported by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, were corruption was a way of life in the Commonwealth. Political influence, not professional performance, was the main condition for doing business with the state. And shoddy work and low standards were the norm. The report found that $7.73 billion of the $17.1 billion spent on public construction jobs had been spent on projects with severe defects, and $48.7 million was spent on projects that were never, that were designed but never built. They also found that the state's way of handling government by appointing a commission every time something went wrong was inconsistent or effective. Instead, the legislature created the Office of the Inspector General in 1980, which was the first of its kind in the United States. It also helped in passing stricter laws regulating the awarding of state building contracts that have completely been 100% effective for the rest of history, I'm sure. Uh... <laughs> the fallout of the MBM scandal was different for different people. MBM seemed to come out okay, netting $6 million for the UMass project. Like, I never saw anything that they went at back and looked at how those contracts were awarded. They just continued on with the project, it seemed like. So, I don't know. Following DiCarlo's expulsion from the Senate, he announced he would run in the special election to regain his seat, but predictably lost. He did attempt to take some more senators down with him by, like, naming other people that were involved in the MBM scandal, including Harrington, who later admitted to cashing a $2,000 check from MBM. Both DiCarlo and McKenzie served 10 months in prison before being released, and neither would work in politics again. And that is the MBM scandal and all of its weaving, twisting yeah. tales of fucking Boston <laughs> corruption. Oh, my goodness. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, ours has a lot of similarities. <laughs> because I also uh, selected something that had to do with uh, construction. So... Vicky, have you ever actually been in Boston or like driven in Boston? I have not. Okay. No. Let me tell I, you. No, I have not. I know my mom went and visited like two summers ago, I think. Yeah. So that's the, the closest I've been. If you think which is the roadways are bad in Illinois, go to Boston. Uh, <laughs> the roads are super mismanaged. There's like traffic circles every five feet, and these traffic circles are like 
five lanes deep. It's gross. Oh, my God. But in particular, Boston had a six-lane elevated roadway called the Central Artery, which was I-93. And this particular road was a huge mess. So it was decided that something had to be done to fix the congestion problem in the area. So I will be telling you the case of Boston's Big Dig, a.k.a. America's Greatest Highway Robbery. (laughs) Oh, clever. I I like that. I like (laughs) that. (laughs) So the original road, I-93, was designed to withstand 75,000 cars and was built in 1959. So this is when Ike was laying asphalt all over the U.S. of A., trying to get all of these roadways interconnected across the United States so that people could travel easier. Now, by the 90s, double that amount of cars were using this highway system. And the Big Dig was initially intended to reduce traffic flow through the city of Boston by depressing a portion of the I-93 highway and constructing a new harbor underground tunnel. I hate underground tunnels underneath the water. They freak me the fuck out. So this was like... I love them. (laughs) They're so creepy and like cool. I don't know. Different than being above the water. (laughs) (sighs) This this will change your mind after I tell you what happened with this roadway. Oh, God. (laughs) These improvements were to provide not only a new gateway to the city, but also improve the area's infrastructure by adding parks and civic spaces. I put in this infographic that kind of tells you a little bit more about the uh, project. So, like I said, there were 75,000 cars estimated to use the roadway, and by the 90s, it was 190,000 vehicles using it. So, more than double. Uh, Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There were 16 hours of traffic jams (laughs) predicted by 2010. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Like, 16 hours a day? A day of traffic jams. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm fucking serious. Oh my god. So That's most of the day. <laughs> it is. Almost all of the day. Now, when this project was first considered in the 80s, the Big Dig's primary challenge, besides getting environmental agency approval, was to obtain funding. In 1985, the Massachusetts Highway Department was tasked with the responsibility for overseeing and planning the Big Dig. They chose the team of Betchel and Parsons Brinkerhoff (laughs) to manage the project, which is like a mouthful. Nice. (laughs) They had this reputation in the industry as these big heavyweights who had done some of the world's largest projects, including the Hoover Dam and New uh, New York City subway system. So what could possibly go wrong, right? It's not like the Hoover Dam had huge fucking leaks in it. Foreshadowing. No, it was fine. (laughs) (laughs) So in 1984, during the pre-development stage, the initial estimated cost to complete the project was approximately $2.3 billion. By 1989, it was estimated that the construction would actually cost $4.4 billion with a completion date of 1998. Oh, that's literally double. The true cost... (laughs) Exactly. Wait for it. The true cost of the project was approximately $14.625 billion and took an extra seven years than planned. Oh, my God. How could they be so wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you. Oh, no. According to an article, engineers knew that the original projections were far too low, but politicians covered up the actual estimates. And a quote from a newspaper article. Engineers in the late 1980s already knew it was 12 to $14 billion for this project. They told everybody who would listen, including the politicians and those people, kept it quiet. Oh, my God. So the people of Boston to this day are still paying for this project. What's that saying? Wow. <laughs> Wait. So it started when? In early 80s, right? 1984. It's done, kind of. But they're still paying for it. It is 2021, people, <laughs> and they're still paying for it. Oh, my God. That's insane. Now, in 1997 and 2000, legislation was attempted to be passed to help bail out the project, and it did not go anywhere, because why would people want to spend even more money to bail out a project that was failing? Uh, so the project had to start with constructing like the underground tunnel and then rerouting traffic and then demolition of the overhead roadway so it is labor intensive but 
It was severely mismanaged. Yeah. The project was plagued with so many construction oversights that it's not even funny. There was bonk cement, inadequate construction, and just plain dumb accidents that made this project like a literal laughing stock. In 2004, failure to adequately clear construction debris from concrete walls caused water to start pouring through a portion of the I-93 tunnel in downtown Boston. Hundreds of other leaks were found after investigation. A Boston Globe reporter stated that there were nearly 700 leaks in a single 1,000-foot section of the tunnel beneath South Station. What? 700 leaks within 1,000 feet. That's like... A leak every foot. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm just waiting for that moment where like a hole in the wall bursts and it's just like <laughs> pouring in water. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. So the issue was not just the substandard material, but also the amount of salt corrosion. Mm. Now, not only was there salt spray corroding the underground tunnel from the amount of salt in the fucking ocean, but they also used salt on the roadways during winter, which further eroded the cement. They did they use salt they use salt on the underwater roadways? I guess it'd be yes. like a giant <laughs> freezer seems in there. Ridiculous. Huh. So in May of 2006, six employees of a concrete supplier, which was Aggregate Industries, were charged with fraudulent concealing that some concrete used in the big dig tunnel was of shoddy quality. Uh-oh. Then they double billed for this concrete. Oh my god. Okay. The concrete <laughs> actually provided was old there is a expiration date on concrete if it's um of certain standards like you're not supposed to use it after so many years yeah so not only was some of it old but some of it was actually already rejected by inspectors and they used it anyway (laughs) and they were like just kidding we're gonna present it again and it's totally fine (laughs) okay Aggregate Industries would pay $50 million in penalties to the state for its role in providing 5,700 truckloads of substandard concrete. It's a lot of concrete. Under the settlement, this is this is the fucked part. Under the settlement, the firm was allowed to avoid debarment, which, if you're not familiar, is a sanction that would have kept the company from bidding on other state and federal contracts. So they just paid the money, got a slap on the wrist, and they could still keep bidding on state and federal contracts. There's definitely part of me that's like, why would you let these people (sighs) continue? I mean, clearly they were deliberately like Mm -hmm. misleading and not listening to inspectors. And like, I don't know why you would trust those people to do another project ever. Exactly. The other fucked part about this is all of the six employees who were named in the case were either sentenced to community service and fines or house arrest. Oh my god. Well, that's it. That's all I got. Wow. So this is re- this is the this is the real shitty part of this. On top of all of this, four workers were killed while working on this project. John Hegarty, a pile driver who was struck on the head by a 30-foot wooden beam in 1998 died. Oh my god. Fook Khan was a carpenter who fell 50 feet to his death into a pit in 1999. Frank Shea Jr. was a laborer who was killed in 2000 when a U.S. post office tractor trailer pinned him against a concrete barrier. What? And Lonnie Avant was a crane operator who was crushed in 2003 when the 65-ton vehicle swiveled to one side, pinning him between the cab and the wheel treads. Oh, my God. So... We have the tunnel literally crumbling down around. The actual tunnel itself is not safe and people are dying in it, not just from the construction site, but because people who are driving in it can't drive in it safely. Yeah. Jesus. From 2000 through 2004, there was an average of 264 injuries among big dig workers that were reported annually to the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Where I was just going to say, where is OSHA in all of this? (laughs) Jesus. That is OSHA right there. Oh, my God. One of those workers was Natalio Elias. Now, I'm going to say this is a trigger warning. So if you do not want to hear about this man's injuries... Speed ahead a few minutes, okay? Oh, boy. The 42-year-old construction worker had sued the two companies managing the project as and a subcontractor. And they argued that they were negligent in July of 2000 uh, because of an accident that left him permanently brain damaged and unable to work. 
An eight-foot-long metal brace impaled Elias's skull, but because the underground work site measured only five by seven feet, rescue workers were unable to extract him until firefighters came in and cut off the ends of the brace, leaving a 14-inch piece of steel protruding from each side of his head. Oh this my is like God. fucking Grey's Anatomy. They literally had a case like this in Grey's Anatomy. Oh my god. So they were able to they were able to remove the steel eventually, but he has permanent brain damage and basically uh is severely disabled because of this. Wow. Yes. The other issue um is that there's some problems with the guardrails that they put into place in this tunnel. Now, public safety workers call the safety handrails in the big tunnel Ginsu guardrails. Because the squared off edges of the support posts have caused mutilation and deaths of passengers ejected from crashed vehicles. What the fuck? (laughs) After an eighth eighth report of death involving the safety handrails, MassDOT officials announced plans to cover or remove the allegedly dangerous fixtures, but only near curbs and exit ramps. This partial removal of hazards has been criticized by safety specialists because they said that the the guardrails are just as dangerous in the straightaway sections of the tunnel as they are in the exit ramps. You can't get into an accident in the straight sections of the tunnel. What are you talking about? People driving straight don't get into accidents, (sighs) go flying out of their car into pointy handrails. Oh my god. (laughs) Now, on July... 2006. This is where the actual death comes in. Malena Del Valet and her husband were driving through Interstate 90 Connector Tunnel when 26 tons of concrete ceiling panel crashed onto their 1991 Buick, crushing to death the 39-year-old mother of three. <gasps> oh, no. Now, to put this into perspective, 26 tons of concrete is approximately four full-sized male adult elephants. Oh, my God. So, the NTSB's July 2007 accident report said the wrong type of adhesion was used to secure the concrete slabs and the tunnel ceiling. And the Massachusetts Turnpike Authority contributed to the accident by failing to implement a timely tunnel inspection program. Of course, the concrete supplier, Aggregate Industries, was actually never held accountable for this accident. Of course not. I almost think that if you have a tunnel that literally goes underwater, that you would want to inspect that like at twice the rate as a normal like bridge or tunnel inspection. You would think so. In 2008, the family of Milena Del Valle reached a $28.9 million settlement with 15 parties named in the wrongful death lawsuit. Of the nearly $30 million, Betchel Parsons and Birkenhoff and Modern Continental paid the largest share of the settlement with a combined amount of $15.4 million. Federal prosecutors also said Modern Continental systematically overbilled the big dig in a scheme that totaled hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh my god. Now, Power Fasteners, which was the manufacturer of the epoxy used to glue the support bolts for the multi-ton plates that crashed down on the car, had previously announced that it would pay $6 million. The U.S. Attorney's Office alleges that the company knew in December of 1999 that the epoxy used to secure the ceiling concrete anchors was not appropriate for long-term loads, but they continued to use it anyway, and then certified that the work was done properly. Oh my god. They knew in 1999, and this woman died in 2006, and nothing was done. That is absurd. That is negligent at best. Like... Yeah. Oh, my God. So there are a few other companies. There was Gannett Fleming Incorporated, which was the law, f- which was the firm that was hired to design everything. Um, they paid the rest of the millions that were remaining in the lawsuit. Wow. In March of 2011, it became known that MassDOT officials had failed to disclose an issue with the lighting fixtures in the O'Neill Tunnel. In February 2011, a maintenance crew found a fixture lying in the middle of the travel lane of the northbound tunnel. Assuming it was just plain old road debris, the maintenance team picked it up and brought it back to the home facility and did not make a report. 
The next day, a supervisor passing through the yard realized that the 120-pound light fixture was not road debris, but in fact was one of the light fixtures used in the middle of the fucking tunnel. Oh my god. Where it's dark. Probably darkest. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Further investigations revealed that the fixture's mounting apparatus had failed due to corrosion of incompatible materials. This was caused by having aluminum in direct contact with stainless steel in the presence of salt water. Further investigation revealed several lights were in the same state, and as of April 2012, it appeared that all of the 25,000 light fixtures would have to be replaced. Wow. At an estimated cost of $54 million. Weird how all of these projects end up costing them way more Yeah, in the end. <laughs> Strange. So the big dig both helped and hurt the environment as it complicated public, the public works project often do. Um, automobile exhaust causes air pollution and health problems, and it's a pretty big significant source of gas emissions. And the, the big dig actually helped to reduce pollution and carbon monoxide by 12%. But of course, that's just an underground tunnel. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's just underground then. Yeah. The big dig helped prevent traffic pileups by cutting the amount of cars that would have idled for hours. Uh, however, uh, they used a bunch of concrete and metal and shit that fell into the ocean and um, numerous other things. Oh, my God. <laughs> the problem with this is that there was actually no, like, super federal investigation on this big dig. A lot of the things that happened were like tiny lawsuits and slaps on the wrist by Massachusetts state. Yeah. And that's really about it. Yes. Um, so there were people calling for commissions, but not a whole lot has happened. There's still arguments and there's still a lot of problems with the big dig and people are still trying to cover it up to this day. Yeah. And so during my research, of course, when I was looking into the Ward Commission, actually the big dig came up quite a lot because a lot of people are calling for that same style commission to really dig into the issue, if I may. (laughs) But they're calling for the same type of commission to look into this and and it just doesn't seem mm-hmm. to be getting the same amount of traction which is weird to me because you already had this commission that's like straight up everybody there is a lot of corruption and shady yeah. shit going around our building contracts and then that mm-hmm. came out in 1980 and then literally like four years later they go right into another yeah one. <laughs> they're starting another project that is just it's it's almost like that whole thing never happened and they're just like Meh. exactly i have read quite a few articles um there was actually a scholarly paper written that i have cited in our show notes if you want to read it that talks about like the ramifications of this project on how other public works projects have been handled and should be handled but they extensively talk about how this is still ongoing yeah uh, people are still to this day like i said before paying for this project and it's still needing to be repaired and it's not like the roads are physically complete but they're not at all safe yeah and i cannot stress that enough (laughs) they probably would have not incurred all of these extra costs had they just done it right in the first place like exactly and been honest up front about the cost of the project like then i feel like you wouldn't have had a problem from the start they're like oh don't tell people it's going to be estimated more than it really is. Right. You know, what do you think is going to happen with all that money when they ask for extra money? Oh, my God. <laughs> they go in someone's pocket. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, so that's the big dig. <laughs> I guess before you try to bribe your local senator or use horrible work equipment for a multi-billion dollar project, maybe <laughs> you should listen to this podcast. Hello! Hi! This is Georgia and Kate from Nothing Rhymes With Murder. Join us on a global journey of murder. Yes, every week we go to a new country and find a true crime gem, as well as some fun hotspots to visit. So remember, kids, life is a journey. Don't let murder stop you. Okay, bye! All right, bye then. Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) All right, Janelle, that has been our episode. That was a fun one. Sure I'm, has. I'm so glad we finally yeah. like took a trip back to Boston to talk about the corruption. And we're not just yeah. talking about Chicago corruption for once. <laughs> right. For once. 
Just don't drive on the underwater tunnel, guys, please. Yes. So we do actually have an announcement. I don't know if we've talked about this yet. We do. We've announced a little bit on social media. Yeah. But if you're, like, avoiding Facebook like half of the world, good on you, first of yes. all. And secondly, we are in the Elgin French Festival this year. Ooh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Again! I love doing the Fringe. <laughs> yes. It's so fun. Yes. This is our third Fringe. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, we don't have the exact details of whether or not we're going to be in person or online yet. That will come out a little bit closer to the date, depending on what kind of things are happening in pandemic land. Yes. Um, but keep an eye out on Side Street Studio Arts webpage or on uh, the Elgin Friends Festival's website. Either one, they're connected, so you'll you'll see it both places um, about the dates in September and how different things are going to be presented. Yeah, and I'm sure once we uh, find out all this information, we'll release it on our social media as well, um, mm-hmm. including dates and times and where you can buy tickets. I'm just so excited to actually have an event to look forward to this year uh, <laughs> so that we can see you guys and do some live yes. shows and kind of mm-hmm. get back into the swing of things a little. Janelle and I are both vaxxed, so like, let's do yeah, this, baby. Vax to the max. Yeah. We're ready for you. <laughs> um, so yeah, so Elgin Fringe, that's great. If you liked this episode, you can find more just like this at the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. Wait, what is it? Bad Taste <laughs> Bad Taste Podcast dot com. There we go. Oh my god, have a website somewhere. Yes, <laughs> you go to Bad Podcast dot com where you will find all of our episode links. Um, link to our merch store if you need to get that tank top for your hot girl summer. Is that Wait. what the kids are saying now? I think so. Sheesh. I don't know. Maybe it's passe That's a thing. now. <laughs> Does that like get our younger crowd? I don't know what that is all about, but they do that sheesh thing a lot. I never will. No, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I started using TikTok and I never felt so old in my I, life. No <laughs> fucking kidding. I don't understand. I've hit that point where I'm like, yep, I don't understand the youth anymore. The youths. It's very busy for me. <laughs> it makes my brain hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you can check that out. You can also, uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to our donate, uh, link on our website and that's all there. It's all good. Everyone's good. We're all good. (laughs) Good, 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 good. good, good. Janelle, you have anything before we, uh, wrap it up? Nope. That's it. Hooray for friend. Yeah. (laughs) It is seriously so nice to just have something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. On that note. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Murdered ten young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town.